I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with the Vancouver-born, LA-based artist, Andy Dixon. In his trademark fluorescent hues and shaky pastel tracery, Dixon's paintings focus on the world of money and its cultural signifiers. From tennis matches to Versace jackets, Lamborghinis, and antique vases, to a more recent series depicting the interiors of his patrons' homes, Dixon uses this kind of imagery to transform his paintings themselves into objects of desire. I met with Dixon in October at Beers Gallery near Old Street in London on the first day of his most recent solo exhibition. It's called Alchemy, and the show runs until the 17th of November. If you're listening from London, it's well worth a visit. In our conversation, we talked about, among other things, Dixon's earlier life in music and graphic design, the distinction between addiction and passion, which led him into painting, and the alchemical properties of his paintings, which are able to manipulate systems of value to amplify their own worth. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. past life as a musician, a graphic designer, and uh, a fledgling artist. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word for it. <laughs> um, so, I mean, this comes up a lot in other interviews you've given. You were really active in the punk scene in Vancouver mm-hmm. in the 90s. You started a band when you were 12 years old yeah. called DBS. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, we were around for 10 years, so I guess from between ages of 12 and 22. Um, I started playing guitar when I was, I think I like begged my parents to get my first electric guitar when I was about eight, and then I started taking lessons, and it was like a little headbanger, and I turned into a little skateboarder, and I turned into a little punk kid, then I turned into like a weirdo teenager, then got into like more experimental stuff, and like outsider music, and it's just been a really long trajectory. I think, yeah, my trajectory is maybe a little bit harder to like trace than the average person because of how involved in music I have been from from such an early age that you know obviously the your taste is different when you're 12 than when you're 22 and then mm-hmm. 32 so it's hard to, it's hard to like trace exactly how I got here but uh it all kind of it makes sense to me it's like I, nothing I didn't you know it's all related. It was like all one step at a time to get here, you know? It's not like just suddenly I turned into like a different person or there was some mm-hmm. David Lynchian, like, I'm a new character all of a sudden moment. <laughs> it kind of, at least from the outside, feels a bit like that. Does it? Um, just looking more at your past work and how hard it is to find 
early paintings of yours. Mm. So I guess even before we get there, though. Sure. So you finished with DBS in 2001. I believe that's right, 2001, yeah. And then you had a slew of other music projects, uh, including Secret Mommy, which is uh -huh. probably what you're best known for. And that was a different type of music, electronic, mainly uh, using samples and found sounds. Yep, and, and recorded sounds. And recorded yep. sounds. Yeah, exactly. And this is, I think, taking place during a time where musicians were starting to refer to their laptops as their instruments. Exactly. Um, and so you had albums uh, that featured sounds recorded from swimming pools or shopping malls. Yeah, normally, so each uh, album would, would have like a kind of theme. I guess I like to create a certain amount of rules for myself and then try to be as creative within those rules. I didn't, I didn't come up with that idea. I mean, there were, there were certainly people doing it arguably better before me, like, um, like Matt Mose is maybe one of the more famous uh, uh, pr music projects to do that. They, did a, they had an album called A Chance to Cut is a Chance to Cure, which was made all out of uh, different surgery sa sounds. So they went in and recorded different people's like an eye surgery and I think maybe even, I think an, a rhinoplasty. And, uh, you did one on your own uh, root canal? Is that right? Oh, so yeah, I did exactly. Yeah, I I did record my own uh, wisdom teeth removal. Okay, actually, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, I had to get all four wisdom teeth pulled um, in one sitting, and I don't know. I guess I just felt like I might as well. If it's going to be a horrible experience, I might as well try to get something out of it. So <laughs> I decided to record it and make like a three-track EP. It was kind of like one forty-minute long or something like that uh, piece of music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then on the side you were also making uh, album cover art for other bands as a graphic designer. Yeah, so that's another one of those sort of like small steps that makes sense to me because actually way back even in the DBS days, I was the member who loved drawing, and um, I just sort of got elected to make our album covers and our T-shirts and stickers and all the stuff you uh, punk bands had in the '90s patches. And I guess that what you know, other bands just started to ask if I I would do their album cover. And then so by the time I was twenty, right, you know, around the time that DBS ended, I had sort of accidentally created a kind of graphic design illustrator company almost or something. I mean, it didn't have a name. Well, it did actually for a little chemistry bit. Design. The chemistry, yeah, that's right. I I forgot back when I was too afraid to maybe put my name on things or something, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was in my early 20s. I actually did give it a name for a little bit. And, uh, but yeah, it's, again, it's funny. It, it didn't feel like I made a choice to become a graphic designer. It just sort of, it just sort of happened. I liked drawing and I liked collaging drawings in the same way that I was collaging sounds and samples. To me, it was all very related. It was just a visual version of Secret Mommy. Mm. Um, and the cover sort of reflected that, like all the Secret Mommy covers had this sort of like collaged uh, visual element to it as well. And I, started, and I got into some uh, like motion graphics and video stuff as well for a bit. But to me it's, yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of the same thing, just taking different forms mm. in a way. There's a kind of like restlessness and maximalism. Totally, yeah. And like everything is game. <laughs> yeah. And that you, you at that point seem to be covering so much ground uh, through different mediums, right, and it's so it's almost impossible now for an outsider to piece those elements together because a lot of the websites where the work 
was written about no longer exist. Yeah, it's true. I or they link to articles that no longer exist. Yeah, and yeah. so like I'm, it's, it was a weird adventure for me going into like Wayback Machine. Yeah, to find earlier versions. Oh, of the cool! I would actually have loved to see that. Yeah. Uh, so there's a kind of like last, last quality to that early stage of your artistic career as well. I think because your first exhibition was in. What, 2007, 2008? Oh, boy, I don't, um, like, even that is hard to answer and, and is also these sort of, like, small steps because mm-hmm. when, you're, when you're in the DIY punk scene, there's, like, a very clo- it's a very, it's like a, a brother of the sort of, like, DIY art scene. I mean, we were playing, like, quote-unquote art galleries or art spaces and stuff, so, and I had these album covers out and people were saying, well, why don't you submit some artwork why don't we put some of the artwork on the wall too mm-hmm. while you're playing and you know um so i would just sort of start doing that and then some of those people started running kind of like legitimate galleries in vancouver and i just started showing i like mm-hmm. but i i guess my very first if i can remember correctly my very first time i ever showed anything was at a gallery called misanthropy gallery in vancouver mm-hmm. and it was just one piece in this kind of like uh anarchist collective art collective thing you know where like no one's running this thing we're all equals that kind of thing and i definitely showed one piece in that that and boy i'm gonna say that was probably well let's see dbs broke up in what did we decide 2001 (laughs) so probably 2000 and maybe around 2000 Mm. i'm not sure and then, like, you would never find that. There, that I'm sure there's no record of that happening. You just have to take my word for it. But, uh, and then the gallery was run by this guy, Neil, and he saw my piece in that group show and then gave me a solo show, like, the next year. And this is all, like, pretty loose language because it get, it's not like it was an established, like, commercial gallery. It's like, it was like a... It was like his apartment, essentially, you know? Uh, but I did technically make this like a full show and I think it even had like an element of um, installation in it. I did a, like a bit of a mural in there. I don't think I sold a single thing. I think it was all worked on paper. Oh, there were some, there were some canvases. But uh, yeah, I, I'm going to say it was 2002, but mm-hmm. I'm terrible with time. Mm-hmm. But, my, I, but then maybe what you're referring to is the first like show at like a kind of more established gallery, which is Grace Gallery. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, I don't you, you might have it written down there, actually. How to draw everything? Yeah, exactly. How to draw everything was, the, was my first, like, kind of real show. And it was only because I knew Rachel, and she had seen kind of my work, and I would probably did a laptop set at the uh-huh. gallery before, and um, we became friends, and she said, like, why don't you do a show here? So I Can did. you remember what kind of work you were showing there? Yeah. Yeah, so that was like where I didn't quite know what I wanted to do yet. Some of the works looked almost like a kind of Cy Twombly action painting sort of thing to them. And some were almost more of like a David Shrigley, like text stuff that were more, uh, that were a lot, they had a lot of humor to them, I guess, like David Shrigley. You mentioned Twombly in one particular painting called The Italians. The Italians, yeah. So what, when, like, when did you first come across that painting and what well, kind of impact did it have? Yeah, it would have been in New York. I was in, it was at MoMA. And, and again, it, even while I'm doing all of these things that I just said, I'm showing at these galleries, I didn't really take it very seriously because, frankly, I don't think I 
understood painting. I didn't even want to be a painter. I didn't know if I liked like that kind of art. I was more interested in um, like modern ideas with uh, with sound and music and um, but there was something about this painting. I walked into like uh, one of the rooms at MoMA and I saw and just the scale of it and it reminded me of music like something there was something it's probably the first time I ever got uh, I don't know that it that a painting affected me emotionally the way music affected me emotionally, which was, for some reason, it's way easier for that to happen. I can listen to a song. I can cry at a song. It takes a lot to cry yeah. at a painting, you know? Uh, and I think that was, like, the moment where I realized that I actually, I actually liked painting. <laughs> I, you know, I liked art. It yeah. just took a long time. I think I was just a, a grouchy, like, cynical punk kid that thought art was... I don't know what I thought art was. I wish I could ask my my 20-year-old self exactly what I... I didn't think it was a scam, but I guess I didn't think it was... I don't know, it wasn't... It, it, wasn't, it wasn't punk, I guess, you know <laughs> what I mean? Like, it, it didn't have... It, wasn't, it was too abstract for me, I guess, or mm -hmm. something, you know? It's funny, like, how musical genres seem to... They're really helpful, actually, in, in explaining possible approaches to art and art making. I totally agree. I can mostly talk about work through metaphors of, of music. Yeah. And so, like, if punk is where you're coming from, then the attitude was more about um, uh, a kind of unpracticed, raw exactly. emotion? Exactly. So Basquiat was the other uh, artist that I think every punk kid likes. You know, uh -huh. they're like, oh, I don't like hoity-toity art, but that Basquiat guy is amazing. And that was, that was totally me. And then, and then Cy Twombly. Yeah, there's something... It's so... Um, it's so expressive like it's actually at that point I probably wasn't into like punk but I'm not talking about like the Ramones or anything like that but more like um, there was a sort of genre that was that was budding up that um, kind of turned into sadly like what emo is now but it was like they called it emotional hardcore basically and it was just about like being really angry or being really sad but not really knowing how to play exactly right and just uh, about like pure emoting, not necessarily about like impressing an audience with your uh, technical prowess, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess that's what I got out of Cy Twombly. It felt like, a, like an emotional hardcore song to me. <laughs> <laughs> and then at some point, things, at least from the outside, really did seem to change insofar as the subject matter became more um, considered and more specific, mm -hmm. and the representational style became more honed. Too. And I wonder, like, well, I guess there must have been a point, I think you have referred to this in other interviews, where there was like a moment of crisis in your mm -hmm. 30s mm -hmm. where you realized that um, you had to decide on what you were going to focus your time on, be it music or art. Sure, yeah. And so could you talk a bit about y that? Yeah, I guess, you know, as you get older and debt is just building up, because I, it was, it, this was also a time when, um, just before this, I could pay my bills with graphic design because the music industry was still going pretty strongly. So I could get paid X amount of dollars to, to design somebody's um, album cover, right? But then, all of a sudden, 
the MP3 kind of changed everything, and and Apple Music or whatever came first. And now people had you know a fraction of the budget to design like a little 600 by 600 pixel JPEG. You know, it's not quite the same, and mm. the budgets weren't there anymore. And bands weren't making any money. Labels weren't making any money. I was also running a label at this point too. That's right, Cake yeah. Records. Yeah, and that was certainly not making any money. So. Um, I was getting more and more in debt, and I, and I wasn't getting much design work, and I was probably approaching my 30s, I would think, maybe maybe I'd just turned 30, something around there, and I was still trying to do music as my main thing in this time when music was so un unstable, and frankly, I just didn't like most of the things I had been listening to before. I mean, I, I think I'm one of those people that's always looking at what's next. I've never, I've never been very content with like, I don't, I'm not, I'm not very, I'm really not a nostalgic person and I don't really care to revisit some of the art I made before or some of the music I was into before. It's actually kind of embarrassing. <laughs> I prefer to like think about what's coming next. Um, and so I was lost and I didn't know what was coming next, I guess. And I, and I thought like, I started thinking maybe in music I could be a producer or I could make beats or um, remixes. I can do that kind of thing, but I just, I, I guess I just didn't want to. And, um, and another thing that happened was that I, I realized that what I thought was, um, was passion was actually, like, I felt like I could uh, work on a remix or, or a Secret Mommy album for hours in a day. I could do that thing that people describe where you've completely lost track of the day and the next thing you know it's eight hours later and you haven't eaten and, and all that. And so I found that, you know, I found that that was happening and it felt like sort of like my calling if I, if I believe in that kind of thing. And, um, but I, to be honest, like, it kind of occurred to me that maybe it was just about the screen, right? Like, you can kind of get into the zone. Maybe it was almost like playing a video game. You, what, I, what I thought was passion was actually possibly my, a, a kind of addiction almost or something, like the same way people are addicted to uh, video games. So there's like that mm -hmm. tunnel vision of looking at a screen, because it's screen-based work, so it's mm -hmm. graphic design. Mm -hmm. And I, th I started to think, well, maybe, maybe it's not because I'm so passionate about it. Maybe it's just because you kind of sit there in your underwear in like a dark room and stare at the screen, and the possibilities are so endless in the digital realm, like, oh, maybe I'll try changing the snare drum to this sound. Maybe I'll put in this thing. Maybe, and you could just do it forever. Mm. And it, I think it was almost like an addiction more than it was. And that's why probably why the music was so maximalized. I just kept, I just kept adding <laughs> to it. I didn't know how to stop. And while conversely, if I would try to paint, I could do it for like two hours and get bored. And, and, but I realize now that that's kind of like a nonsense uh, barometer for for deciding or realizing what what makes you happy you know and I think that's a misconception because I hear people say that all the time like oh I love this because I could do it forever and time just slips away and I'm like I don't know if that means that you love it or you, it's just a weird addiction you know <laughs> uh, and so that was part of it and I thought like what even is a 30 year old musician I mean music is kind of the cult of the youth and I started getting more into Art. Like I just, I you know, after that Cy Twombly experience, I, I started looking up, you know, actual paint, paint, contemporary painters, 
and did my own online research, which just meant like going to blogs and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And, um, and, I, and then I realized also that this thing be, that is painting was super successful. Every time I, show, I did a show, we sold everything. And I never even put any time into it. Like when Rachel at Grace Gallery, she gave me two shows at Grace Gallery. And honestly, she contacted me two months before each show and was like, hey, do you want to do a show? And I'd be like, yeah, okay. And I'd just sort of just do some drawings. Um, and people love them. I think they love the humor of them, the kind of... And I, and I think what I was trying to do was exactly what you were saying. It wasn't about technical prowess. It was sort of punk in this way that it was about the idea or the emotion. And... Um, and uh, yeah, so I thought, well, if this thing is sort of taking off without me ever even like trying, where I'm just sort of like doing it at the last minute, what would happen if I just quit everything and like actually really tried to paint? Um, up until that moment, I hadn't even had a studio in my life. I just painted it at my dad's house. Uh, I don't even know if I painted. I kind of drew. I don't even know if there were paintings. But um, and so yeah, I just went, I just went for it. I just tried it. I just had a weird existential crisis and thought I'd better I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go for it just kamikaze it <laughs> right in there and this is this is an interesting point that you never went to art school you weren't ever formally trained in painting right and so it's all completely self-initiated yeah and like some people will still refer to you as an outsider artist because of that yeah I don't like that title t- mm. to be honest I, it, there's something sort of there's something sort of pretentious about it isn't there like mm. To refer, at least to refer to myself, I wouldn't do that. If someone wants to call me that, technically, I suppose, by the definition of it, it, it could be. But, but at the same time, it's not, because I'm not outside of the system. Mm-hmm. To me, when I think of outsider artists, I think of someone like Henry Darger or someone like that, who literally had no connection to the art world. And once he died, he found all this work. And um, that's outsider art to me. I'm, I'm showing and... You want to participate. I'm, I'm in the game, yeah, exactly. The work is about being in the game. In and fact. so there's this idea of like joining the great conversation that yeah. you've referred to in the past. Yeah. There's a way um, of becoming a part of the system which has to do with um, acknowledging and absorbing uh, influence. Exactly. And, which, and then trans- transforming it somehow. Yeah, which is something I was like very naively against in my in my more cynical 20 20s i think i carried this like chip on my shoulder that i thought the music that i listened to came from nowhere it basically like came from a vacuum and like anybody who didn't like it just didn't understand it and it has no reference points to like musical history mm-hmm. which of course is nonsense mm-hmm. but it took me like a stupid amount of time to, re- <laughs> to realize that obviously everything's connected and uh and that's good and and to into uh, you know involve yourself in what uh, this great conversation as you just said it is you know to speak to your predecessors and and add to what they were what they were trying to say or or you know take it into through the filter of you and then mm-hmm. uh, is is uh, is great I mean mm-hmm. I, yeah and everyone does it anyway you couldn't possibly say it's somebody that there's nobody that doesn't do that yeah you know? ideas got to come from somewhere. Uh-huh. I just want to read off a names of uh, a few more recent exhibitions you've been involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, so one uh, that happened recently in Los Angeles was on the ceiling of my suite at the Royal Palace. Yeah. Uh, in 2017, you had How Much Do They Cost? <laughs> yeah. Which was via Beers London in yep. Plus Miami. 2016, Expensive Things 2 
and then there's also expensive things. One, 2015, leisure studies. Uh huh. So, the, I mean, listeners who aren't familiar with your work will very quickly understand what your interests are. How did luxury become uh, the main subject matter of your paintings? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I think it started with a kind of. Um, with the with the punk scene i think like growing up in this punk scene and one of this it, this sort of like dogmatic code about not selling out and i almost believed that if you do something for money you are now not that it's not real anymore or that it's not authentic or something um which i also think is nonsense now um but i think i was just reacting to myself really to reacting to my previous cynicism so yeah, I guess in some ways, back to what we're saying about everything being a small step. Every once in a while, everything's a small step, but every once in a while there's a, almost like a flip, I mm -hmm. guess, where you're sort of newly cynical about yourself, I guess. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. It's, a, it's, it's complicated, and I'm not even sure I know how to articulate exactly what it is, but I just started playing with... Um, it felt like a taboo that I could play with, considering the sort of culture that I grew up in. Um, you don't paint Lamborghinis, and you know, you, and so now I have to paint a Lamborghini. You know, that's, <laughs> that's just how I work, and that's how taboos work for me. And I also wanted to kind of call, like, um, call out, call bullshit on, on these sort of scenes that that parade as as very open-minded and like a, and and uh, like a lot of liberal ideas which I'm all for but sometimes you start to realize that those things are just another set of rules they're just another dogmatic code and actually they're just as cynical against another thing and you know and so I just felt like uh, there was something to play with there mm. There's this really great article by a writer named Alex uh, Alex Quicho yeah Quicho. yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and she kind of traces a trajectory of your work via music metaphors, I guess, to a certain degree. Mm -hmm. And there's an arc. I just want to read what she wrote. Yeah. I think it's... Yeah, um, she's amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. So in her piece, she's describing the shedding of 90s guilt and early 90s irony in favor of today's hyper-conscious hedonism. Mm -hmm. And um, it makes me... It reminds me of how much uh, artists can be kind of mediums for what is just happening in the culture. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that your uh, identities at those specific um, moments in time yeah. align so nicely with what the culture was doing. Yeah, it's funny. But it, like it? amplified on us. Yeah, yeah. And so st sticking with this music thing, I mean, apparently you listen primarily to rap music yeah. when you paint. Yeah, and rap is so much about material culture sure. and affluence, yeah. and, and flaunting it, yeah. and reveling in that, yeah. and not feeling guilty about yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think I was attracted to rap music because I was just sort of. I think Alex said it perfect. I was time to shed the guilt, you know, time to just, uh, you know, I, I don't know how to say it, but, um, I just stopped feeling bad for wanting to be successful and one measurement of that success was money and frankly I do I, w I wanted to make money I want to I want to li live comfortably um, and I probably always did I just didn't know how to to process that and there's something yeah I just was t tired of feeling guilty about it I think
another thing that I guess is kind of related to this is this idea of uh, like artistic persona. There's a there's like a public facing identity that artists tend to cultivate. Yeah. Um, and in your case, currently, um, you kind of resemble um, a living, breathing version of your paintings to me, at least in the way that you're portrayed in in, in media. Yeah. And so you wear tailored suits. Yeah. Uh, often in pastel colors. Yeah. Uh, you have gold-plated eyewear. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I um, do. Yachting shoes. Uh huh. Um, and so you you you've developed this character almost. Yeah. Um, in a really calculated way, and it reminds me a lot of some of the heroes of yours you've mentioned, especially Basquiat. Yeah. Who also painted in was it a Armani? Armani he always painted Armani. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I think David Hockney is another one. To be to be honest, I find it harder to understand not doing it to be honest like to me if you're kind of an aestheticist which mo not all painters are but I mean I like beauty that's why I make you know I'm interested in color and form I don't understand when it doesn't bleed into all facets of one's life if you're interested in that like some artists I know make the most beautiful work and then I meet them and they're wearing like a black hoodie and and, and you're like so how come your taste in this didn't transfer over to like the other parts of your life? Or you go to their apartment and it's just like an Ikea couch and you're like, I'm not saying you have to spend a lot. Of, I'm not talking about spending money. I'm talking about um, just having, just being concerned with aesthetics in, in your life. Mm -hmm. I, I, don't, I don't get how you can't do that, to be honest, as, a, as an artist. It makes no sense to me. I want to talk a bit about like aesthetic research, which I think is something you've referred to before, like how you go about um, scavenging imagery and incorporating those imagery, that imagery or those colors mm -hmm. uh, into your paintings. Yeah. And so maybe like, let's talk about color first. Um, so you've mentioned in the past that this, there's a particular palette you use. I think it's around 20 colors, mm -hmm. generally pre-mixed. Yeah, they're acrylic. all. Yeah. Um, and they're really like vivid, almost neon tones. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned this one video game called Doug. Dig, oh, Dig, Dig, Dig Doug. Doug. Yeah, 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 <laughs> totally. You know, that came out in an interview. I hadn't thought about that at all, but somehow through this conversation, I, I was just trying to illustrate that like, um, ever since, like truly, I mean, it's kind of a cliche, but it's very true. Ever since I can even remember being like existing in the world, I had a, I've just had a fascination with like the way things look. I, I, I can't, I, I don't know why. I don't know where it came from originally, but even things like if I would take my smelly felts, I would, I remember distinctly like putting different lit, because you know they're like a solid color and they are the color, and I would put the caps on the wrong ones just to see like how those two colors like reacted. So if you put like the light pink one on the blue and then look at it and think like, oh, that looks really nice. And then you put the brown one with the yellow one and maybe that one's not so nice. And then, um, and yeah, so another one of those memories is this video game called Dig Dug that I used to watch my brothers play. It is a really basic graphic game. Then all I can remember about it is that the character sort of digs down, but it's like a side view um, video game. and. And, and the way that the video game designers illustrated depth was that the ground that went down at, down the screen is always in three stripes that got darker just to show it was like, you know, darker down mm -hmm. in, in the dirt, I guess. And there were always these three 
stripes, and sometimes they were really interesting. Sometimes, often it was just sort of like yellow, orange, brown, or like light blue, medium blue, dark blue. But sometimes, maybe they just ran out of colors, ran out of combos. But sometimes the stripes were really interesting, and I mm-hmm. and I didn't really care at all about the game. I just loved watching. I just wanted my brothers to beat the level so I could see what the next combination <laughs> of stripes was going to be. <laughs> and it's funny how like anything. Um, anything is relevant all of a sudden in terms of what can influence uh, your work. Totally. And that you can be affected by anything. Mm-hmm. Do you have a way of collecting or cataloging? Yeah, I take pictures for sure of things. In fact, I used to Instagram them. It's funny, Instagram was sort of, to me, almost changed what it, uh, like its purpose a little bit in the last maybe three, four years or something. And I, it used to be less about posting actual painting. Now it feels almost just like my portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, but before it used to be more about my life, which I guess what Instagram stories is supposed to be. Um, but I had a hashtag that I always, always used called color studies. And mm-hmm. they were just um, pictures of like different combination of things, a certain color car in front of a certain color building or a, or a pink leaf on green grass or a, you know, a flower or whatever. Um, and I was, and I would catalog these sort of like accidental combinations, um, and yeah, people really like them. I should probably, I should probably do that again. <laughs> now I take them. I still take the photos. I just don't post them anymore. Mm. Um, it seems like your the the identity you are presenting now in social media is much more considered. Yeah, it's more contained almost contained. or something. I agree. I mean, that's. I don't know if I made that choice, but I think everybody's sort of doing that. It just seems like what social media is now. It's almost like a, it's almost like, uh, you, yeah, I don't know. It's by no means a personal personal account anymore. It's mm. really just, because no one even has a website. It basically is my website. If mm. you want to look at, if you want to check out my work, mm-hmm. go to my Instagram. But that's mm-hmm. what I tell people, you know, uh, is to go to the Instagram account. So it's, it's certainly, it, it, I just consider it my website. So mm. I put, you know, photos of work and installations and, mm. The odd personal photo, but not too many. And you don't use Twitter anymore? No. No, I never was very good with words. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my strong suit. I think I tweeted maybe five times ever or something. And it's funny too, like the the work that is cataloged on your website, it begins in 2015. Yeah, I guess it does, doesn't it? Um, Partly just because that's maybe around the time that I felt like that sort of existential moment that we were talking about, this is maybe a few years after, that was probably in like 2011 or something that I went through that moment. And then, um, it, and then you know, a few years of making work that maybe doesn't quite fit mm-hmm. the stuff that, that um, I do now. It just was, uh, yeah, it just wasn't quite exactly what I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I didn't, I don't put it all up. And yeah, but I, I try to keep it, I try to keep that contained to make it, I guess that makes it harder for people like you to <laughs> figure out what's happening after that. But I don't think you need to look through at like collaged drawings I was doing when I was 22 to understand, to like appreciate this new work. You know, it's, it's, it's important to the story if you really want to go there, but I don't think I need to present that to the world. Like, no, I totally, yeah. I get that as well. It makes me wonder though, um, if there is, um, a really considered framing of your practice that begins at a certain point um, and seems to capture one long um, phase. Yeah, right. What, 
what is on the horizon? Or is there any kind of inkling about whether or not this this subject of luxury uh, may change to something else? Or if I don't think it will. I think if anything, it's gonna. It might start to take on almost like a Fitzgeraldian twist, where it's it will be it will be more of a, a biographical luxury. I think that's the only place it could go. I don't know. I mean, we'll mm -hmm. see. But yeah. I, I could see my... Because the, the interesting thing is that while I depict these things, um, it kind of offers me access to that world. It's, which is sort of the, where the title of the show, Alchemy, is coming from. I'm sort of making luxury by depicting it. It's like uh, it, I'm kind of making something from nothing by just holding a mirror up and now it's a new thing, you know? Um, and so in this way, I've sort of accidentally joined or, or at least I'm sort of participating in this lifestyle that I felt like I was only observing from a distance originally. Now I'm asked to go to like polo matches and things like that. So, so I could see the work getting more personal, like more by, I mean the work is personal. That's the wrong thing to say. All my work is personal. It's, it's about my, it's about There's the way my There's a new intimacy, brand. I think. Exactly. Because we're not only seeing, um, like a, what is essentially a personal subject matter, but we're seeing the interiors of, exactly. of the spaces in which your work is hung. Uh -huh. And so patrons' homes have become um, a new focus of yours. Yeah, and yeah. There's a question there too, I think, about patronage and the influence of patronage on your work. Yeah. There is one particular patron of yours, Charlotte Delal. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 Charlotte Olympia is her, Charlotte like, is yeah, but her, that's her real name, I think. Mm -hmm. But yeah, Charlotte Olympia is a, a shoe designer, right? Like a, a, a couture shoe designer, I think. Um, yeah, I think she might... No, she wasn't the first patron's home. But yeah, the patron's homes, to me, I'm like, re, I'm very excited about them. Uh, I don't know of many artists who have like touched this sort of subject matter. It feels, it feels new, I'm sure someone's going to listen to this and be like, well, actually, <laughs> and I'm sure, and, I'm, and they're not going to be wrong. But... Um, to me, it's about kind of playing with this history of artists presenting their own works in works. But ge historically, generally, that's been depicted in, um, in the studio. Like Matisse's Red Studio is probably my favorite painting ever. And there are five or six of his paintings in that painting. So it was kind of like an uh, homage to the, the creative space, to the process. But I am sort of playing on it, but, but I'm, sh I'm depicting it in the place where it's sold to and that painting can't exist unless a sale happens so there's a kind of I don't know cheeky it's like it's like taking it out of the creative zone and putting it in the commodified zone uh -huh. it's, it's the end product that I'm painting instead of the sort of romantic uh, um, creative space you know and there's a there's like a really pleasurable kind of meta aspect to those paintings where we see in the patron's home paintings, earlier paintings you've done on the walls of the patron's home. <laughs> yeah. And you're creating a system of value that yeah. inevitably raises the value of the work. It's, that's exactly, that's the alchemy. That's exactly what it is. And there's, a, there's an element of like gaming the system there. Yeah, I guess so. Well, I don't know because I don't, I guess that's hard. I don't say that critically at all. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> I say that like, I say that with a lot of excitement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, I think so. It's just, I, I always try to use my, choose my words really carefully when mm -hmm. we get into this yeah. part of the conversation because I don't want to come across 
like I'm making fun of the rich or that I'm making fun of my patrons. If anything, I think I'm making fun of those artists who are perfectly willing to accept the money from these people but then pretend that they're not part of this system. I find that really annoying mm -hmm. um, and, and like a little dishonest really, you know, the like sort of more activist type painters or it doesn't even have to be activists but just artists who are sort of pretending or don't want to talk or they or they feel it's taboo to talk about like the fact that they are entangled in a world of luxury they are if they're selling work i mean some people aren't because they if you opt out of the whole thing then sure but if you want to only put one foot in like some of my friends say like Oh uh, yeah, I hate art fairs. You know, I sh you know I'll send some work, but I would never go to one. And it's like, well, you. I mean, <laughs> choose a side. You know, <laughs> like you. So you're willing to profiteer off of it, but not participate in it. I, uh -huh. And I think I'm just trying to be honest about about that world. It exists, and yeah. it's and it's an important part of the art world, whether you like it or not. So, uh -huh. um, and it's it. I need it. I mean, I need it to eat. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and also, I feel like that wholehearted participation, in a way, protects you to a certain degree. Right. By way of irony. Yeah, yeah. And right. that there is this, like, safe kind of envelope of irony around... It's true. You. I've existed in that world forever. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that sweet, ironic spot is where... is my safe place. It's my womb that I curl up in, and I'm, I'm impervious to... Uh, to uh, I don't know. I don't know what it, exactly. I guess, I guess being told. I don't know when. How was I gonna end that sentence? I think you can just. So yeah, I don't know. I lost my thread no, there. But I, 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 also wanted to talk about one other thing that mm -hmm. um, I think is a is a connection that needs to be made too. Mm -hmm. Is that once I started getting into rap, mm -hmm. I was, was that I also noticed this amazing thing that happens in rap, which is also this sort of alchemy and this patron's home thing, mm. which is a lot of these kids were making mixtapes on the street and already their raps were about how much money they had and the kind of car they drove, but they didn't have it yet. But, but rapping about it gave them access to it. It's like the weird, it's the craziest postmodern uh, concept if you actually think about it. They're essentially saying they have these things and then that is the art form that gets the thing that they're that they're talking about that's amazing yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> I mean in the past you've called it like just to bring it back to art history like it, this is a kind of duchampian technique in a way yeah if you call it art it is art yeah if you call it expensive it's expensive. exactly it well exactly i'm just taking duchamp's theories into the world of um of money really so i think you know i'm not a Duchampian uh, scholar by any means, but I guess the concept is sort of like it's art if, if collectively we decide that it's art. Like if a, the gallery says it is, and the people looking at it say, "Yeah, that's art," then it is. And so you could take that same thing, and and this happens all the time. Is the exact same concept could be put into into the vernacular of money, and it's like if we all if we all collectively decide that this thing is worth a lot of money especially art because it's outside of the regular market some things have math behind them supply and demand there's this amount of diamonds in the world so therefore it needs to be this amount of money but um art doesn't exist with any math it's not a it doesn't have a formula it doesn't ha have the art market is is just complete speculation it, i mean it means it kind of means nothing and really if you wanted to get philosophical 
that's just a kind of metaphor for money in general. I mean, we all just have decided that it pays our rent and we all trade it for goods or whatever, but like, what is it? It's, I mean, it's nothing. We all, we all just do Champignonly, except have all just decided that it is this powerful thing, you know? Mm -hmm. One more question just about um, where you grew up. You're from Vancouver. Yeah. Um, the first uh, exhibition that you've included on your website in your kind of CV is called uh, Canadiana. Mm. And like, to what extent do you see yourself as a Canadian artist or an artist from Vancouver? That's you've, an interesting You've question. worked in New York and you're currently based in Los Angeles. Yeah, I am. Yeah. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. So I'm sort of trying to, if I had to put it into words, I would l ideally like to be the kind of David Hockney of Canada. So he was able to sort of do his LA thing and make a lot of LA beautiful LA work, but it's it was never it was never lost on anybody that he was actually an English painter still. And anytime he wanted to go back, and and it, he would have a like a a large amount of clout in his home, in his home country, even though maybe he hadn't been there in a long time. I don't know how long he lived in LA, but I think it was a long time, right? Um, and so I guess I'm sort of selfishly trying to like simultaneously remove myself from Canada and and get into a larger art market the American and Europe European um, art market because Canada is so small but I also don't want to lose my like foot in the door of Canada and I could and ideally I would like to you know be known sort of as a Canadian artist the same way Hockney is known as an Ameri uh, as an English painter I think mm -hmm. if that makes sense mm -hmm. so I'm just sort of trying to do both, I guess, <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> and it's kind of easy to do, to be honest, because Canadian, I mean, you know, Canadians love Canadians, you know? Like, <laughs> my dad knows every single goddamn person in a movie that is Canadian. And he'll interrupt a movie to be like, oh, that woman back there? Hey, that's blah, blah, blah. She was born in Regina. Like, nobody in other, any other country does that, do they? I mean, imagine an American being like, oh, hey, did you know Brad Pitt is American? <laughs> like, yeah, obviously he is. <laughs> And so I think I can feel it. I can, I, I don't know if this is pretentious, but I can sort of feel Canada still watching me, even though I'm in LA now, you know, mm -hmm. I still feel connected to mm -hmm. it. And it, you know, I was born and raised there. I mean, it's my, it's my home. Uh, my family's there. And I think probably, I don't, I don't really look into this, but I would think that um, a pretty large amount of sales are still probably in Canada. I think, mm -hmm. I don't know. Probably you'd have to ask my gallery, but I, I think so. Well, speaking of sales, we're at Beer's uh, gallery right now, and there are a bunch of uh, patrons and interested buyers waiting outside to talk to you. Yeah, so, uh, I guess I have to do yeah. that. <laughs> Thanks so much for your time. Yeah, Andy. thank you. Yeah, awesome. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Wayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional beats this week by Mike Will Made It. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thanks to Andy Dixon, and special thanks this week to Beers Gallery for hosting the interview. And thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.